We are now in the shorter green season of Epiphany. Epiphany is a season that varies in length depending on the date of Ash Wednesday. This year, Ash Wednesday is late, so the Epiphany season is as long as it can be, nine Sundays. That means that you will get to hear lessons from late in the season that frequently get left out when Epiphany is short. This year, the Old Testament lessons are taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The New Testament lessons are a serial reading of 1 Corinthians, with two exceptions, and the Gospel lessons are from Matthew, with one exception, last Sunday. It seems that the Revised Common Lectionary just doesn't like to let preachers make generalizations. If the passage from Isaiah sounds familiar, it certainly should. We heard it in a longer form at Christmas and every Christmas. It has been adopted by Christians as a hymn of faith, a great prophecy that has its fulfillment in the birth of the Christ child. Matthew quotes a part of this passage as a prophecy of Jesus' Galilean ministry, as you just heard in the Gospel. The beginning of this passage marks a sharp transition in Isaiah. Up to this point, he has been all gloom and doom. Now, suddenly, there is great promise. Promise of a king to lead God's people out of oppression. The reference to the way of the sea is interesting. It refers to the Sea of Galilee and is the likely route of the Assyrian invasion of Tiglath-Pileser III in 733 B.C. Isaiah, referring to it as he does, may indicate that this prophecy was written before the final onslaught on the northern kingdom in 724 B.C. For Christians, the messianic hope is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, but not in the way that was expected by the Jews of his time. They expected a king to mount the throne of David amid general rejoicing following the overthrow of a foreign oppressor. And Isaiah does seem to be saying that. The question arises then, is this passage a reference to a contemporary king or to an ideal king somewhere in the future? Would you be surprised if I told you biblical scholars are divided on this question? Without getting too technical, this passage appears to be a prophecy written on the occasion of the anointing of a new king or at the anniversary celebration of such an event. Isaiah was a prophet associated with both the temple and the monarchy, and he would be a logical person to be assigned to compose a prophecy or a coronation ceremony. Whose? Speculations focus on either Ahaz in 735 B.C. or Hezekiah in 715 B.C. These questions are of much interest to scholars. But when the Christian church reads or sings these words, it is celebrating the gift of God's love in Jesus Christ. It is his song. And we sing it in thanksgiving for the fulfillment of that hope which burned in the weary human heart through centuries of darkness and pain, that God would yet visit and redeem his people. It has all come true. 
Moving to the reading from 1 Corinthians, you can all probably recite with me the saying, the Corinthian church was on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement. <laughs> the dysfunction is quite apparent in Paul's writing this morning. He says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. The Corinthian church had divided into three factions. Things must have gotten pretty bad for Paul to say what he does. Likely he names his source to remove suspicion from Sosthenes and Stephanus and other messengers of the church. Chloe's people were probably slaves, and we may assume that they were not returning to Corinth where revenge might be taken for their tattling. A fine, upstanding bunch those Corinthians must have been indeed. The division seemed to be along lines of who was baptized by whom, Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Paul is at pains to list all those he can recall baptizing for the purpose of emphasizing how short the list is. Paul was greatly distressed at the reports of this party spirit, this factionalism. He goes on at some length outside the scope of our reading this morning, and in the coming weeks we will get to hear most of that. Paul makes clear that his mission is not to baptize, but to preach the cross. He is not minimizing baptism. He views it as important but he doesn't want it to divert attention from his preaching of Christ crucified. We can compare this to Jesus being concerned that clamoring for his acts of healing would get in the way of his proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God. For Paul, the sacrament of baptism is symbolic of death to the old pagan way of life and of resurrection to a new Christian way of life. And Paul, the, but the, some members of the Corinthian church were very far from living in this new Christian way. And Paul seems thankful that he has no personal responsibility for their failure. He emphasizes that when people make vows or demonstrate their confession of faith in such a ritual as baptism, they ought to live up to their promises. The reading from Matthew's Gospel follows immediately upon Matthew's rendition of Jesus' temptation by Satan. Matthew moves directly to the arrest of John the Baptist and how this event launched Jesus' public ministry. While John's Gospel tells of Jesus having an extensive ministry prior to John's arrest, the reading this morning falls into two parts. First, Jesus' proclamation of his message of redemption, and then the calling of the first disciples. Matthew tells that after John was arrested, Jesus moved to Galilee, to the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. We've heard those names before this morning. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the twelve sons of Jacob, older brothers of the famous Joseph of the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Here they refer to the tribal lands of the descendants of those brothers. 
Jesus takes up residence in what will be his new hometown, Capernaum. Matthew quotes two verses from Isaiah as a prophecy of Jesus' Galilean ministry, verses that we heard in the Old Testament reading. Matthew then distills Jesus' preaching into a single sentence, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus meant that all God's past dealings with his creation were coming to a climax and fruition. Jesus taught both the present reality of God's rule and its future realization. Note that Jesus' preaching begins with the same word that John the Baptist preached, repent. The Greek word translated repent carries the meaning of change of mind, but it also stands for the Hebrew word that means to grieve for one's sins. Repentance is an important Jewish doctrine. It involves, one, profound sorrow for sins committed. Two, making restitution wherever possible. And three, a strong resolve not to commit that particular sin again. The Jews believed that repentance that involved these three things would bring God's gracious forgiveness. It bears noting that the only way to be sure that repentance is complete is to resist a second temptation to commit that sin again. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they're the same thing is a central part of Jesus' teaching. He talks about it as both in the future and at hand now. It's important to note that the kingdom is not a territorial or physical place. Think, my kingdom for a horse. But is God exercising dominion over his creation? Absolutely in heaven, and less obviously here on earth, where the free will that he gave us makes it harder to perceive. Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom has three emphases. First, we must prepare for it by moral effort, even though it is primarily God's gift. Second, the kingdom is the sum of all gifts and cannot be described except in poetry. Third, it will come in its full glory in the future, but it is already being manifested in the connection with Jesus' ministry and in the community of the disciples, which, of course, is the beginning of the church. We get another glimpse of what Jesus meant by the kingdom in the Lord's Prayer. He said, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This idea of the sprouting of God's kingdom, the sight of its first fruits, a combination of thanksgiving for God's gifts to us now and an expectation of vastly greater glory in the future, these features run through the entirety of the New Testament. Turning to the call of the first disciples, 
you should know that rabbinical discipleship involved daily contact with the rabbi to form character as well as teach principles of law, by example, as much as by rote. Like the rabbis, Jesus had special disciples, and much of his teaching is addressed directly to them. But unlike the rabbis, he gave a relatively brief training in a few simple principles. Then his disciples' vocation was not to be scholars of the law, but heralds of the kingdom, actively seeking out and saving those who were most in need. To begin his inner circle, Jesus chooses two sets of fishermen brothers, Peter and Andrew, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. At Jesus' call, all four immediately drop their life's work and go off with the master. I don't know about you, but if some man walked up to me and asked me to walk away from my entire life and spend the rest of my days with him, that would have to be some forceful personality. Fishing was a major industry in the Sea of Galilee. Simon and Andrew appear to have been successful but they walk away from it all. James and John also appear successful, and they were in the family business of at least two generations. That makes up and leaving all the harder. But they left it all with hardly a second thought. And for what? A great unknown with a total stranger. The person of Jesus must have been one powerful presence. As it turned out, they left their nets only to return to them metaphorically. As Jesus intimated, I will make you fish for people. And so they did, and with great success, just as they had in their boats. St. Augustine said, Fisherman Peter did not lay aside his nets, but changed them. What a scene this must have been. Four young men drop everything. There was such authority in Jesus that these men, these men among men, who were used to wrestling with storms in total darkness, night after night, in their efforts to pull in their nets and not get washed overboard, found in him a mightier manhood. His eagerness caught their youth, his certainty, their loyalty, his tenderness, their love, and some divine part of him called to the depths of their souls. They left home and business and family for a life that had movements beyond time and place. Their livelihood, even when they returned to it, was only a net with which to catch people. Always, Jesus burned with a passion for the human. If people spoke of harvest, he spoke of the human harvest. If they mentioned fishing nets, he proposed that they be fishers of souls. If they talked of a well, 
he talked of living water. Where others saw buildings, governments, battles, or laws, he saw his brethren. Is there any other source of inner peace than Jesus Christ? Is there any other work more satisfying than that we be fishers of souls for his sake? So in our lessons this morning, we have moved from the prophecies of the Messiah, written in the 8th century B.C., to the beginnings of Jesus' public ministry. That really is appropriate for the Epiphany season, because the Epiphany celebrates the manifestation of the Christ to the world. Jesus' words of proclamation are a good phrase to remember in your daily life. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How so? First, get your spiritual house in order by dealing with your sins. Then, focus on the knowledge that God is doing great things, and he wants you to be his instrument in doing that. So, be ready and open to his call. <clears throat> 